Bom bom bits, a bowl full of chips. Bom bom bits, with Chappy and Pip. Bom bom bits, two young brothers. Bom bom bits, talking college football. Bom bom bits, and life and humor. And some funny ass clips. So relax and unwind. With a bowl full of chips. College football fans, welcome to you this Tuesday night, and we've got a question for you. Who's going to be your buster? Who's got the ability to knock off the big boys going for the big noise in the hunt for college football's finest joys? We're going to give you all that in this preview and insight that you need to know. I am your co-host, Chappie, and you all know my co-host, Bip Magnet. Bip, happy 40th episode, my friend. Did you think it was going to go this well when we first started out? Well, um, I didn't know what to necessarily expect, but I tell you what, this has been a lot of fun, my friend. And, you know, our listeners, I'm sure, know Olney, they know Posey, they know Douglas, they know Bunny, and they know Keaton. But tonight, Chappie, we will be talking some different busters, some playoff busters. We see them each year, and they're both loved and hated, depending on your rooting interest. But tonight, we're going to reach into our crystal ball identify a few of those pesky teams who might be remembered more in 2019 not for getting into the playoffs but rather who they made prevent from making the playoffs yep that's right and you know i think we're gonna go buster douglas here on them and kind (laughs) of give give the picks that are gonna shock the college football world and and look at some of these potential candidates who are going to make things very difficult for the teams that we mentioned in podcast number 39 last week the teams that we looked at in our crystal ball who are most likely going to make college football's fantastic four in that group of eight or so. So we're going to break that down for you here tonight on a bowl full of chips, the podcast that covers college football like an all-American press corner. Before we begin, we want to remind you that you can chime in on our arguments and make yours on Twitter. I am at champion underscore lit. And I am at BFC BIP. So please give us a follow, bring us your mind, show us your passion. You can also visit our show's Twitter page at bowl full of chips and where you can visit our website for a growing number of resources and bits of information including rankings previews all american lists overrated underrated basically any sort of information you're looking for to get that little bit extra edge on college football knowledge hit us up you can also find links to our previous podcasts so if there's anything that you missed or if we reference something and you're like wait a minute what were they talking about here you can go back and check it out please also email us at bowlfulofchips at gmail.com So, Bip, we're going to start off today with some quick news and notes and some of the things that happened around the college football landscape within the last two weeks. So starting off, I was kind of happy to see this. Trevor Lawrence came out, quarterback for University of Clemson, and says, you're not going to see him on any list of players sitting out a bowl game to preserve his NFL future. But then again, he's likely to play in the college football playoffs. So this is so is this really much ado about nothing? Or um, is it something that he truly, you know, would do if, if Clemson was not in that playoff position? But honestly, Bip, I love to hear that one of college football's best players is saying this game is more than any insurance policy, which to me is a bit of a joke anyway, because what are the odds that somebody suffers a career devastating injury in a bowl game? True injuries happen, but I can't even think of one off the top of my head where somebody literally has had their career busted in a bowl game. Sure, it's happened during the regular season, but not likely to happen, especially to someone like Trevor Lawrence, who's going to have a great offensive line in front of him. So you take out the insurance policy if you need to, because you're more likely to suffer your injury in the NFL anyway. So I say preach on, Brother Lawrence. What are your thoughts on that, Bip? (laughs) Well, Chappie, I don't begrudge anyone with pro prospects for sitting out non-playoff games. And usually if they do suffer uh, an injury, a couple examples I uh, came up with, Jalen Smith uh, suffered his knee injury in the in uh, their bowl game against uh, Ohio State. Jake Butt suffered a knee injury in, in his bowl game as well. Now, these guys weren't of the... Uh, Jalen Smith was, was expected to be maybe a top five, top ten pick. He was still taken in the second round. Yeah. Uh, neither of them kind of suffered like an Alvin Mack from the program 
you know, career ending uh, injury, they're still right. playing in the NFL. So it's not as if they, they missed out and, and, and had some sort of a, a neck injury, thank goodness, or anything like that. But I sure do like to hear the competitive spirit of someone like Trevor Lawrence. And like you said, they're most likely going to make the playoff anyways. And even if he does get hurt, it's kind of a, a moot point almost because if say he shreds his knee in his junior season in the playoff, I still think that a team's going to take a chance on him in the first round, knowing yep. that they'll have him for a year. They get him four years after that. So I don't think he's necessarily the poster child of who needs to be talking about whether he's going to be sitting out or not to preserve his pro stock or his pro uh, draft prospects. But I sure do like hearing the competitive nature and, and guys coming out like this saying that they're going to play because they like the love of the game. Yeah, I do too. And and selfishly as a college football nut, I, I, I always want to see the best players play, especially in that final game. And I don't put a lot of stock in bowl games anyway, but right. as a fan and as a spectator, it certainly adds to the entertainment value. Sure. So moving on, keeping with Clemson, there was a little bit of hot water that head coach Dabo Swinney got into when, you know, he's from Alabama and beating the Crimson Tide for the second time in three years. He made the comment saying that, you know, you know, a reporter asked him, what's it like being in your home state and Crimson Tide fever is everywhere? What do you what is it like being Dabo Swinney? And he says, I'm kind of like Osama bin Dabo. Um Basically talking about and saying with a laugh, he says, I have to navigate my way through the caves and back channels to make my way through Alabama these days. They aren't happy to see me. Well, a couple of reporters saw an advantage to make a story out of that and spun it in a way to say that it was a very insensitive remark. It never should come out of his mouth. Some people were going as far as to say he should be disciplined. I don't know about you, Bip. Is this is this a big deal or is this more just PC garbage? Yawn. Yeah, uh, right. I think this is definitely just another time to where the, the PC P, uh, police are just being annoying and looking for something to latch on to. I think this is much ado about nothing. Yeah, and, and it's really like trolling because there are people right. out there, especially some of those shock reporters who are literally just looking for any angle to say, okay, I can complain about this even if I'm not deeply vested in the emotional side of it. I know other people will, and it's going to get clicks, and I'm going to cash in on that. And as pseudo-journalists and as pseudo-reporters and broadcasters, you and I are a bit, that's, that's something that I would never, ever want to get into. That's, that's no. never a, a side of journalism that I think anybody should get into. And it's kind of sad to see that people are more interested in making a big name for themselves and being shock jocks as opposed to just reporting on things that people really care about. And yeah. I don't begrudge them necessarily uh, from a strategic point because there are there's a big audience that wants to complain about nothing, but I certainly don't fall into that <laughs> category. And I'm with you. Yawn and let's move on. For sure. Well, one more thing on Clemson. Uh, former Akron and Auburn head coach Terry Bowden joins the staff as an unpaid grad assistant. And he is taking a class in leadership there. But I think this might be a way to get around the total number of coaches that Clemson can officially have on staff. And certainly he comes with a great track record, a great pedigree. Naturally, the son of Florida State head coach Bobby Bowden, you know, legendary coach there. But is this, you know, I think this is a good get for the Tigers and another case of the rich getting richer. Bip, do you think that this is something that, uh, you know, is, is a good move on their part and on his part? Well, first of all, what the hell is a class in leadership and why is that offered at a, at a university? But second of all, yeah, it makes me wonder how many more times this might happen for folks like Bowden who are older. They don't need the money. They enjoy staying involved in the game, especially if someone like Bowden who's going back to where he was previously. And I think it's only a matter of time before people like Saban and the rest of the uh the the hawks out there in the coaching ranks to use this as a way to get additional staff without having to break the rules necessarily yeah i i think it's really smart and you know i i question it too you you've been a head coach at the fbs level for over 20 years so you're needing to take a course on leadership you know that's it just doesn't seem right to me and Really, if anything, he should probably take a fitness and exercise class because if you compare <laughs> his head coaching uh, picture at Auburn compared to now, it almost looks like he ate his brother Tommy. So maybe that should have been the, the path for him. Right. But uh, well, moving on, there's, you know, speaking of things that add pounds, there's a lot more alcohol that's going to be served at college games this year, namely increasing in the SEC and the Big Ten schools. I have some mixed feelings here. So 
if you allow me to go on my soapbox, college to me is a place where alcohol flows most in tailgating. And then it can die down and fans can be fans and don't need to be drunks during the game. I've been to Detroit Lions games, you know, living here in Michigan and other professional venues, even in other sports where alcohol really seems to be a detriment. You know, the the a-hole drunks who are there, you know, you're trying to take your kids and enjoy a game mm-hmm. and you've got to deal with foul mouth, you know, people who are just every other word is F-bomb, you know, dropping, you know, cursing language. And it's just not... Not needed when you're when you're trying to enjoy a game, and you know, like I said, at the college level, the game's entertaining enough. I don't feel that you need to waste yourself in alcohol. And don't get me wrong, I enjoy a good beverage here and there, but why spend right. nearly forty dollars on three beers when you can bring your own, you can tailgate, and you can still have a great time at the game, even if you are in an an ine- I'm sorry, an inebriated state. <laughs> I'm I'm Porky Pig. Yeah. Uh, I think maybe teams with losing records in the last decade should maybe allowed easier access to it. I'm looking at you, Rutgers, Kansas, Oregon State. Maybe they should get a waiver to be able to serve it. But, you know, in, in places like the SEC, I think that this might be setting up a little bit more for problematic situations, more so than enjoyment of the game. Yeah, especially when you consider how rabid those fan bases are in the SEC, especially, but also all yeah, across the country. When, when you have the opposing fan base that's right next to you know they're surrounded essentially the rest of the stadium and you have alcohol added on to that in addition to all the tailgating that goes on at college sports yeah you, th- you got a recipe for potential disaster there but i do like your thought about rutgers kansas oregon state and some of those other bottom feeders maybe when the team goes down by 20 points or more they're all given everyone in the audience is given a complimentary shot and then each additional <laughs> score that happens after that to where they go down into a further deficit they get another complimentary shot because they got to have some sort of value at that kind of game. Right. It's almost like instead of taking a TV timeout, they'll just take an official's timeout for for shooters. And you, know, <laughs> you, you got five minutes and you've got ushers that are going to distribute it. And everybody does it in unison. And you've got that uh, that community and that bonding that happens in the stands. And then you get back to football. I like that idea, Bip. Exactly. Well, uh, one more note here before we hit our two-minute drill in the news and notes. Former Texas Tech head coach Cliff Kingsbury was catfishing his players. Well, kind of. It was reported that he was creating fake accounts on social media to keep an eye on his players and stay ahead of the game. I don't know about you, Bit, but I think this is a smart and proactive way of trying to keep your program in the right. So essentially what he did is he created these fake accounts and befriended some of his players to kind of keep a pulse on what they were doing, where they, you know, what things were happening. And let's be honest, young adults are are not very bright when it comes to putting things on social media. They really don't have the foresight to think about what they're doing before they hit that send button or that submit button. And sometimes that comes to bite them and their coaching staff and their program in the butt. So I think this is kind of a, a good way to keep ahead of the game, so to speak, even though some people will cry out, oh, it's an invasion of privacy, and how could he do this, and he's deceiving his players, he's lying to his players, would you really want to play for a coach like that? I don't think that that's worth crying about. What about you, Bip? Yeah, well, it kind of sounds like he's going a little crazy ex-girlfriend here, but I do like the thought that he's, you know, being um, a little ingenuitive um, and, and using social media because coaches keep keep uh, tap on their players in any number of ways currently why not do it on social media my only question is is he doing it personally or does he have someone on his staff doing it because it seems like he could easily delegate this to someone else and use his time a little more uh, effectively than checking in on social media on which of his players are idiots through twitter yeah, or no, uh, I'm, instagram or snapchat <laughs> i'm i didn't read the exact part of that story but i i can sure. imagine that he's got gratis okay. for people who are doing that because yeah that's a whole different situation where if he's got that much time to sit there on on the computer <laughs> and look at what his players are doing maybe that explains why he was let go he's and in why Arizona they, yeah why why he couldn't get above eight wins in a season especially when they would <laughs> rattle off four against non-conference teams so right well let's get to our two-minute drill just some quick bullet points here our condolences to the Bramblett family at Auburn University and friends for their loss of Rod and Paula in that tragic automobile accident couple weeks ago so the play-by-play guy for the Auburn football radio program you know certainly uh, thoughts and prayers go out to that family on a similar note Walt Gary Alabama superfan who uh, that college game day did a story on this season as the gentleman with Down syndrome that would greet Nick Saban every day he passed away at the young age of 36 
certainly, you know, you, you love to see stories like that. And it's sad to see people go. I mean, we saw Tyler mm-hmm. Trent's passing, but it's, it's, it's awesome. You know, what we, we saw on Twitter that there, there were people who are nauseated by these human interest stories on college day, game day. I applaud it. And I say that it's a good break because how many times can you hear about the top five teams who are playing and breaking it down from 19 different angles? It's a good diverse way of giving us a more well-rounded look at all that goes into college football. Right. Uh, Chandler Morris, the son of Chad Morris, the head coach for the University of Arkansas, will go to play for his dad as part of the class of 2020. Um, he turned down Clemson and Auburn to go to UA. So look out for the Hogs in the near future. He's a four-star recruit. And in terms of you know a son playing for his dad as a head coach, it worked out for the Stockstills. Brett Stockstill had a pretty darn good career at Middle Tennessee playing for his dad, Rick. So we'll see how it goes for the Morris family. Um, Urban Meyer refuting USC rumors saying, quote, I think I'm done. Mm, I don't know about that bit. Reggie Bush was making a push. Urban loves to uh, coach. And the only thing I see him waiting for if he doesn't take the USC job is maybe that Brian Kelly's job at Notre Dame opens up and he can go back to ND where he got his first major break as a member of the Irish staff. But we just learned that the second player under his watch at Florida was just charged with murder. So that's defensive back Tony Joyner joining, obviously, uh, the late Aaron Hernandez. So, you know, that's I think that's been a little bit bigger news than any rumors of him going to SC. And speaking of trouble, UTEP quarterback Kai Loxley, yes, the son of Maryland head coach Mike Loxley, got himself in trouble again for drug possession and potential terrorist threats, basically making a social media post saying that he had a allegedly had a a, a gun with a full magazine saying that he wasn't afraid to empty it. He was a former University of Texas recruit who transferred to UTEP. And I have to wonder, will this mentally affect head coach Mike Loxley's first year at Maryland? Because this is not the first time he's had to deal with some family mental health issues within his family. And I think it was his son, Kai Loxley, who got into some heat earlier in his career. So is this going to be something that's going to take away his his attention and his focus? And you hate to hear it. It's tragic. But at the same right. time, you know, I don't really have much patience for anybody who's going to make any sort of threat with the society we live in today and with all the the, the tragic shootings that go on. This has to be dealt with. And and hopefully he can get some help if, if that's truly what he needs. And, you know, it doesn't affect Coach Loxley, but certainly something needs to happen. Yeah. Well, uh, quick transfer portal update. So we've got Oliver Martin, who's formerly of the University of Michigan and from Iowa City. He makes the jump to Iowa, a good physical receiver with solid hands. I think it's a good get for the Hawkeyes. They also add in 2020, Buffalo receiver Charlie Jones is going to transfer and CMU transfer Jack Combs. Both guys will be joining the Hawkeyes next year. So really with those three joining Amir Smith-Marset and Brandon Smith, who I believe both are going to be back next year. I know Smith-Marset will be. He's only a junior this season. That's going to be a pretty loaded team for the Hawkeyes at wide receiver next year. But, you know, still this year uh, they do get Martin. Um, inside linebacker Shaq Smith goes from Clemson to Maryland. Smith had 28 tackles, two and a half tackles for loss, a sack, an interception, and 16 games over the last two years, but injuries have hampered him a bit. Now, Bip, he's a former five-star and a number six overall player in the country when he came to Clemson. He's described as a great leader by Dabo Swinney, who had a solid spring and was slated to start in Death Valley this season. He joins about the 74 other transfers going to College Park, Maryland. And it seems like them and Illinois have raked in the most transfers this year, at least in the Big Ten. Running back Deion Jackson goes from Notre Dame to Washington State. He had 368 yards on 65 carries and five touchdowns for the Irish in 2017. He left there and played at East Mississippi Community College, in other words, Last Chance U, in 2018 and was second team All-Juco All-American last year. You made a post on Twitter about that. I think that that's a pretty good get for the Cougars, especially given the fact that they have some depth issues at running back behind Mac behind Max Borgie this year. Yeah, and Deion McIntosh. You McIntosh. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. Jackson. Yep. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, yeah, yeah. He was never. He never uh, was head and shoulders. You know, an oh my gosh, uh, running back during his short time at Notre Dame. But in mop up duty, he certainly looked impressive. I was sad to see him go, and uh, he he made the most of his time. Uh, at his, uh, his junior college stay. So interested to see how he how he uh, gels with uh, Washington State and the rest of that Cougar offense. Yeah, and again, my apologies. Dion McIntosh, not Jackson. He's the guy who's over at Duke. So 
A uh, couple others, just real quick. Defensive tackle, defensive tackle Jackson Cravens goes from Utah to Boise State. He'll be eligible in 2020. Boston College gets former Clemson transfer defensive end Richard Jurgen, who got in a bad car accident a couple of years ago and last year claimed retirement from football, but now decides he's going to come out of retirement and play as a grad transfer in Chestnut Hill. He's going to add to a defensive line that's going to need a little bit of help with the losses of, of Ray and Allen this past year. Um, at Clemson, he had five tackles for loss, one and a half sacks, and twenty-five. Or I'm sorry, twenty-one tackles. Defensive back Nick Harvey goes from South Carolina to North Texas. He played in four games sparingly at South Carolina and was apparently not happy with his projected playing time this year. Now, previously before that, he had a pretty good career at Texas A&M, a key contributor as a freshman through junior seasons. Started twelve games as a junior, made sixty-six tackles, had ten pass breakups, and even returned a punt for a touchdown. So that sh- that could be potentially a key addition for the Mean Green out in North Texas. And then Randall Grimes, who was transferring from USC to Minnesota, leaves Minnesota, goes to UNLV. As it turns out, now he's about the fourth or fifth player in the ca- class of twenty nineteen to leave or decommit from the Gophers. So you got to wonder what's going on with PJ Fleck over there. Why are there so many of these guys who have committed to him this year and are now jumping ship and and getting out of the boat Uh, right and in addition to minnesota illinois had the same thing so i was i'm wondering if if guys commit to these big 10 schools and then they kind of do some research and realize oh winter's gonna suck so let's go somewhere (laughs) else yeah if you don't like the cold or the snow get the hell out of minnesota so (laughs) right well let's get to our college football playoff busters this year bip so what we're doing here uh our fellow chippers is we're going to start off and give you out of the group of five possibilities. First of all, do we think that there's any team that could challenge for that fourth spot in the college football playoff? And simply put, my answer is no, there's not going to be. So I'm going to break down three or four teams that people are saying might have a chance, and we'll talk about why I really think that they won't, Bip. So I'm going to lead us off, and and we'll get to your thoughts and piggyback off of me with anything that I may have missed. But Let's start with the obvious elephant in the room, the UCF Golden Knights. Now, they may lose two games this year. They play Stanford in week three, which I think that is going to be a win for them. I think they're going to catch the Cardinal early enough to where Stanford is still trying to break in a run game. They're replacing a lot of guys that they had leave on defense, especially in that front seven. But the Knights have to go play at Cincinnati, and that's going to be really the game of the year in the AAC. They have to play Houston at home. They have to play at Tulane, who's going to be a scary team to look out for in the AAC. Then they have to play the AAC championship game, likely against Memphis, or a rematch against Houston if the Cougars make it from that West division. I'm not sold on their quarterback situation. The reason that they got so big into the limelight was my favorite college football player to watch since Tim Tebow, and that's Mackenzie Milton. Now, Milton was really the, the the straw that stirred the drink there at UCF. Once he went down last year in the finale against South Florida, They struggled against Memphis and really had to come back from really a three-score deficit, and I don't think it was because of Daryl Mack. I think it was really more of a combination of their run game and Memphis kind of shooting themselves in the foot, and then they got exposed against LSU. I know that people are saying, well, they didn't really get exposed. They hung tough, but that game wasn't even close. Uh, The only couple chances that UCF had to bring it close, they kind of uh, dribbled down their own legs, so... Mack had trouble hanging out of the ball last year and didn't perform well in the spotlight against the Tigers. Brandon Wimbush, who's a transfer from Notre Dame, I think has a better resume, but but he's a better runner than he is a thrower. He struggled a little bit in the spring in terms of his precision and his accuracy, especially like you touched on with the short touch passes uh, and intermediate passes. They complement each other, and it might very well be a two-quarterback system that Josh Heupel ends up going with this year, but I don't think that it works to impress any committee when you have that type of system. And the other reason is their rush defense, which has to be good on any championship-level team. They were 118th in the country last year. Not good when you play Stanford. Cincinnati, who was 15th in the country in rushing. Houston, who was 24th in the country in rushing last year. And Tulane, who was 23rd. And then possibly, like I said, Memphis in the championship game, all these without Mackenzie Milton this year. He's likely going to miss the entire season. And why would he come back? Because any prognostication says that if he does come back, if, if there's any miraculous recovery, he wouldn't be ready until November. So why play those games and risk that knee when you could set up for really a great comeback season in 2020? 
Their secondary is good, but if the front seven is porous, these defensive backs are going to get worn down, and they're playing many new defensive linemen this season. So those are reasons that I think, Bip, that UCF really is not even going to be mentioned come late November. Right, and and I agree completely. Uh, they, You and I both like their group of running backs. I really like their secondary, but it really starts and stops all at the quarterback position. Whether it's Mack or Wimbush, without Milton at the helm, this team goes from potential undefeated back into the obscurity of being perhaps just the best team in the AAC. Additionally, they were 95th in uh defensive yards per game allowed last year, but they were 36th in points per game allowed last year. And that's due in large part uh, primarily to being third in the country with a plus 14 turnover margin. That's too many yards and not enough points given up for what they should have. And the turnovers back that up. So I think that plays a factor this year as things should regress to the mean a little bit. And that defense allows more points as the Knights don't figure to be as lucky as what the stats suggest from 2018. Right. Well, the next team that a lot of people are throwing out, and this is more of a possibility and probably the best possibility that the Power 5 teams have, and that's Boise State. This team has the best shot at making that splash, but I think that they're going to lose their opener to a much-improved Florida State team in Jacksonville, and we'll talk more about the Seminoles later. But Florida State may slap the Broncos the way that they got pimped in their opener last year against Virginia Tech. A lot of hype coming on Boise State, but they have a new quarterback, and they and both should be good, whether it's Chase Court or whether it's Hank Backmeyer. But their first taste of the big spotlight is coming up against the Knowles, and it's 2,500 miles from Boise. So Backmeyer sounds like he's going to be the guy he enrolled early. He impressed a lot of people in the spring. But Chase Court is the more dynamic playmaker, even though he's recovering from a knee issue uh, that he suffered last year. Now, if they get by Florida State, I don't see another loss until either at Utah State or the following week. Um, when they play at Colorado State, who I think should be better this year. And now that Coach Mike Bobo is healthy and doesn't have to worry about medical issues and his own health, in addition to combining his his coaching duties, I think that the Rams are going to be a team that could sneak up on, on others in the Mountain West this season. Now, they do have the loss of Alexander Madison, and they have very little returning production in the run game, and that's concerning when their leading returning rusher is Andrew Andrew Van Buren, who had just 163 yards and 34 carries last season. Not much is said of him this spring either. So Robert Mahomes seemed to be the leader, but keep an eye out for George Holani, who's a highly touted incoming freshman from the state of California. I look for Holani to be that feature back by midseason. They'll have receivers to throw to in Khalil Shakir, John Hightower, and even C.T. Thomas, and one of the stronger and more underrated offensive lines in the nation as they bring back all five starters on that front. Their defense should be good, really good actually, even after losing middle linebacker Tyson Maivea, who was dismissed before the bowl game last year, a game that he did, that they didn't even play because it was canceled. And they're stout in all three areas, up front, in the middle at linebacker, and at defensive back. And defensive end Curtis Weaver is a stud. So those are reasons why, if they get by the Seminoles, and if they have enough style points, they could be flirting with the Final Four. But I still think that they don't get it. Even if they're undefeated, you're going to have to have really all the big boys at the top knock each other off and and leave the committee no choice but to throw in a team like Boise State and Brian Harson, who is an up-and-coming coach. Biff, what do you think about the Broncos' chances? Yeah, their defense is going to be really, really good this year. John Hightower, their junior college transfer that comes in, it has been talked about very highly and could be one of the surprise receivers this year. That offensive line looks pretty good for them. But like you said, questions at running back, questions at quarterback. And let's say that they get past Florida State. Like you said, they're going to be favored in every other game that they play this year, but that's kind of because they have a very easy schedule. Mm-hmm. They're going to need Florida State to go 11-1 and with their one loss being to Boise, Utah State being the same way, and I still don't know if they get no. in if they finish 12-0 and and those two teams being 11-win teams just because of how soft that schedule is. Right. Even if Utah State wins 10 games and one of those wins is against a good LSU team out in Death Valley, I still don't think it's going to be enough to take a Mountain West team. I think that if there's any team that's going to have a shot, it's got to come from the American Athletic Conference, and they have to be undefeated, and they have to really steamroll kind of the way the Knights did in their last season when Scott Frost was, was at the helm there. 
Yep. Now, the, the other team that might have a chance to make a splash, and it's because their non-conference schedule is one of the best of the Power Five, and that's the Houston Cougars. And Dana Holgerson came over from West Virginia, and he says that it was one of the best decisions that he's made, and I agree. So he and Houston are getting themselves into the right situations, each of them. I still think that Kendall Bryles would have been the right hire. He was a UH alum and learned how to run a program in all the positive ways anyway, from his dad, Art. He's a young guy who's trending upward, but nonetheless, Holgerson is the guy, and he's still a big get for the Cougs, albeit a very expensive one. He signed a five-year, $20 million contract, the most ever for a non-Power 5 conference school. And the big reason why I think that they're going to make a splash is quarterback Derek King. Now, he should be an All-American quarterback this year, and perhaps if UH wins 10 games and he has the stats he had as a sophomore and into last year before he got hurt, and with the weapons he's got, especially at receiver, he might even be a Heisman finalist. Before he went down in week 11 last year with a torn meniscus, he had thrown for over 3,000 yards, rushed for nearly 700, and was responsible for 50 touchdowns. That's 5-0. And the good thing is he says this spring he feels, quote, 100%. We know the offense will be good with Holgerson guiding co-coordinators Markel Blackwell, who's a USF grad, and Brandon Jones. They're going to return King's top three targets, Marquez Stevenson, Keith Corbin and Courtney Lark, who I like all three of them, especially Stevenson and Corbin, as well as running back Patrick Carr, who will join Texas transfer Kyle Porter, and they get three starters back on the offensive line. Now, the issue is going to be defense as they finished in the bottom 11 in scoring, rush defense, and pass defense last year, though they were on the plus end of the turnover margin. They bring in new defensive coordinator Joe Cawthon from Arkansas State, whose defenses were in the top half of the country in most defensive categories, most notably 27th and sacks, and he looks to bring that aggressive style to H-Town. And their strength's going to be in their D-line on that side of the ball, as well as their safeties. And they're going to get a lot of help from the JUCO market and picked up some key transfers this season as well. Now, Houston's schedule is going to be nightmarish as they draw Oklahoma in Norman in week one. Then two weeks later, they play Washington State, although that's at Houston's Energy Stadium. So those two teams in weeks one and three, then they've got the Conference USA title contender, North Texas, um, in week five, I think. They play Cincinnati and then at UCF in American Athletic Conference crossover games. So if they can topple all those teams and they pan out themselves, then yes, this team will deserve some serious consideration for the college football playoff. And Holgerson, I think, would be unanimous coach of the year selection. But, Bip, that's a lot of big ifs for the Cougars. Yeah, I like uh, Derek King a lot, similar to you. Really like their group of receivers. Think they have some potential at running back. Lots of holes on that defense, especially at linebacker and cornerback. And similarly to you, they're going to need everything to go right this year. They do look out, right. though, in the fact that they play at Oklahoma in their in their opener and then have Washington State in week three. If they can come out 3-0, and they should be ranked near the uh, middle of the pack in the country in regards to the top 25. And then all of those other AAC conference foes and the AAC conference championship game at the end of the season. If they can come away 13 and 0, this is one of those schedules that sets up to be potentially enough to, if there's several one loss teams at the top of the country, maybe the playoff committee looks at Houston as being an exciting enough team to maybe challenge uh, to get one of those top four playoff spots. Yeah. And I kind of liken it to if I'm going out to dinner and I hit every green light and I get to dinner and I order a nice steak entree and I find a $100 bill on the floor and then I get back home and I have an email waiting in my inbox saying, hey, we have more money at the company than we think. So you're going to get a bonus and we're going to give you a week's paid vacation next week and you can take it and go to a, a, a destination. I mean, again, a lot of big ifs and, and putting my, my trust in luck on the line there. That's how I kind of see the, the Houston Cougars going this year. I think they're going to be good, but all those things have to play out even for them to get that shot. So, right. And, and similarly to your, your analogy there, you get that big bonus, but it's going to be tax. And you have to wonder <laughs> if that AAC tax on Houston is going yeah. to be too much for them to overcome. Very good, my financial whiz friend. <laughs> well, let's get to the the Power Five teams now, Bip. So who are these teams that are going to be the potential busters where they may not contend for a college football playoff spot, but they're certainly going to have a great chance at toppling one of those seven or eight teams that we outlined in our last podcast who we think have a good setup to make it to the Final Four, 
but they've got to get past some of these teams. So let's kind of ping pong back and forth. Who's one of those teams? And we'll try and hit on every Power 5 conference, but give me one of your teams that could make some waves in stopping the progress of one of those title contenders. Chappie, I'm going to start with a team that you already mentioned uh, slightly in the Florida State Seminoles. Now, their schedule sets up to where they start off with Boise State at a neutral site and what's a pseudo home game for the Seminoles in Jacksonville. They've traveled to Clemson, in which both teams have a bye the week before that game. They have Miami at home. However, the week before, Miami travels to a physical pit team, so you have to wonder if that plays into that. And then they uh, finish the season at Florida, in which both teams have a bye the week before. I really like this seminal offense and the potential that it holds. They have Tamori and Terry, Kalen LeBourne and Cam Akers running the ball. Uh, James Blackman should be uh, set up to be a pretty good quarterback this year as he looked uh, pretty decent his last couple of years in spot duty and Kendall Browse coming in. You figure that he's going to uh, tap into his true potential. I like their secondary. It's young. It's talented. Has something to prove this year. And that defensive line looks pretty good as well. Marvin Wilson will challenge for All-American status, in my opinion. And I think the secondary will benefit from that defensive line and vice versa with a, what should be an improved seminal defense. Now, the things going against them last year was a train wreck and I don't have a ton of confidence that Willie Taggart will have this thing fixed in just under a year's worth of time. And the Seminoles have the scariest word in college football and it can work in both a a positive and a negative light. And that's potential. Florida state is loaded with it from their highly touted recruits to their coaching staff, to the thought that perhaps they've wooted out all the bad eggs that turned into that turned 2018 into the, into the debacle that it was Florida State's going to be a complete mystery and one of the more difficult teams to predict for 2019. Additionally, that offensive line was one of the worst in the country last year. Could be improved this year, but anything less than a major improvement from last year's production would still put them towards the bottom half of the country in regards to offensive lines this year. So those are my thoughts on FSU, Chappie, and I think that they could be good for an upset or two, but they're they're the major question mark for me going into 2019. Yeah, I would agree. That's that's the team that's the scariest to predict because they could, you could really hit on them or you could really have the bottom fall out. I'm really curious to see what the Vegas line will be for their over-under on wins. I'm going to project it at eight right now, and I would take mm-hmm. the over on that. I, I really see them making some noise. So they've got Boise State in the opener in Jacksonville, but that's really a pseudo home game for the boys from nearby Tallahassee right. against the Smurf Turfers who, again, are traveling 2,500 miles across the continent with a new quarterback and a new running back. They do play at Clemson, where both teams are coming off a bye, and both should be undefeated coming into that sixth game for each team. And the game will once again have some hype, which we haven't really seen in the last couple of years. Advantage, though, Clemson with all that buildup. And look out for the Knowles, though, in 2020. If they gain momentum and and get proper coaching this year, I think that the Seminoles could have a pretty big hype train going in 2020. And then, like you mentioned, they play at Florida. Now, the Knowles have won the last four in Gainesville, and if they, w- if, if they win this one, that would put them at 11-1, and one, in my opinion, and they wouldn't have to play in the ACC championship game. So if things fall the right way, they not only could bust up the playoffs uh, for other teams, but they could bust a playoff spot for somebody else because, you know, especially a team that might be playing in their conference championship game, even if they're undefeated, I could easily see an 11-1 and Florida State team whose only loss is to a Clemson team who's probably going to win the ACC and might be doing it in an undefeated fashion. They could be in over a one-loss Big 12 team, or they could be over you know, even a one-loss Big 10 team if they, if they do things in the right fashion this year. But again, my biggest question mark is Willie Taggart. I'm not convinced that he's the great yeah. leader of a program just yet. Maybe he'll prove me wrong this year and maybe he can be a guest and he can, you know, throw it back in my face. Come in, come <laughs> the offseason. We'd love to have him for sure. <laughs> uh, I'm going to go to the sec and my biggest college football playoff buster is going to be Auburn. So in week one, they play Oregon and Dallas. Now, a lot of people are high on the Ducks, saying that they're going to be the PAC 12's representative this year. Everybody's high on Justin Herbert. They're saying that him coming back for one more season is put, almost automatically putting Oregon in the driver's seat for a college football playoff spot. I don't think that they're going to win that game. I think that Auburn's going to come out of that opener in Dallas. I think it's going to be a pretty Auburn-dominated crowd. They have a much shorter travel 
to make than the Ducks do and allowing them to stay closer to home for longer. I think the Tigers scratch out the win in a shootout versus the Ducks. They get Georgia at home off of a bye week, whereas the Dogs have their rival sandwiched between home games against Missouri and a something to prove team in Texas A&M in a similar show me state, but with a much higher ceiling the Aggies have. So I think that that's a perfect situation for Auburn to catch Georgia at just the right time. Then the Tigers finish at home against their rival, the Crimson Tide of Alabama, where Gus Malzahn has beaten Nick Saban two out of the last three times in Jordan-Hare Stadium, including his first year back in 2013. So really three teams that need to look out for the Auburn Tigers, three teams who going into 2019, a lot of people have as favorites to make those final four spots going into the playoffs in January. Beth, what do you think about the Tigers? Right, and they're a scary team because you you always hear about it and you always witness it that the games are won in the trenches and they return all five starting offensive linemen and that defensive line with Davidson, Brown, Coe, Big Cat, Bryant, yep. it's going to be scary. So yeah. they're going to be a force to be reckoned with to run the ball on and that offensive line should give that offense uh, the space to run and the time needed to uh, throw the ball as well. And as you've mentioned in previous podcasts, this is an odd year. This is the time that Gus Malzahn usually shines, especially when he's on the hot seat, as he kind of is going into this season. I think Auburn, like you mentioned, is good for at least a an upset or two this year going into uh, the season. Yep. Well, let's get back to you. Who's another team from a Power 5 conference that other blue bloods and big boys should look out for? I like the Indiana Hoosiers. Now, on their schedule, they have home games, particularly against Ohio State and Michigan that I'm looking at. And mm -hmm. I really like Stevie Scott, and they have true freshman Samson James coming in. Their run game should be pretty good this year. Additionally, the Hoosiers returned three of their top four uh uh, three of their top four receivers from last year. And I really like Peyton Ramsey at quarterback. Now he is going to be in a competition with Michael Penix jr. And those two are expected to, to battle it out as, as well as um, I believe it's Jack Tuttle, Jack Tuttle that came yep. into um, there as well. So whoever comes out with the starting job, I think Ramsey's got the, the upper hand in that, but whoever comes out, there's going to be, you know, the cream's going to the to rise to the top and they'll have great depth at that position. So they should have a, a pretty good passing game as well as a run game that should feed off of that. Now, their game against Ohio State is the third game of the season when Justin Fields is still getting his feet wet and that defense is still largely unknown under new defensive coordinators, Greg Madison and Jeff Halfley. Mm -hmm. Got to wonder if the Hoosiers play them tough, similarly to how they've done in uh, past years. And Ohio State has not been immune to teams like Indi uh, uh, Indiana the past couple seasons as that's been their big speed bump that they've had the past two years. And more so, the game against Michigan is a home game between when Michigan takes on hated rivals Michigan State and Ohio State. So going yeah. into that game against Indiana, Michigan plays Michigan State in what should be a very physical game. And on top of that, you know Michigan's going to be tempted to look ahead to the Ohio State game no. and maybe look ahead of the Hoosiers. Have to wonder if that plays into anything as Harbaugh tries to get his first win against the Buckeyes. Um, Indiana in the past few seasons, uh, or, or I'm sorry, Indiana last year gave Michigan as much trouble as just about any other team in the Big Ten, not hailing from the state of Ohio. The only things that I question going into this, the main thing uh, for sure is that defense, as it's not going to be doing them any favors. Last year it was one of the worst in the Big Ten, and it figures to be one of the worst again this year. While I like the offense as an underrated offense in the Big Ten this year, if either Ohio State or Michigan jumps out to an early lead, I don't necessarily like the Hoosiers' chances of coming back the same way that I would uh, think that the Buckeyes or Wolverine uh, chances might be decent if they fall behind to the Hoosiers early on in those games, Chappie. Yeah, you really do like the Hoosiers, and I knew that, but uh, well done on your research there, my friend. Thank um, you. They... I, I like Indiana as well, and that's a team who I tweeted out a little while ago saying this could be kind of like the Kentucky of this year. Now, the Wildcats were putting things in the right places. They were building a program. They they took a chance on Mark Stoops, and it paid off. Indiana's done the same thing with Tom Allen. Now, I know he doesn't get a lot of respect around the conference, but <clears throat> Indiana in the last few seasons, especially under Allen, has played Ohio State tough. 
especially in Bloomington. And they played Michigan tough. And Harbaugh seems to have had more struggles with Indiana on his schedule than almost any other team, aside from Ohio State, of course, Mm -hmm. and Michigan State. (laughs) So like you said, they get the Buckeyes in week three. Now, these games have been close. However, what scares me for the Hoosiers is it's a 12 o'clock noon kickoff. I think if this was a later game, they'd have a better shot, or, if, or even if they played on maybe a Friday night mm-hmm. and and got the crowd a little bit more into it. But you have to wonder how much is the crowd going to factor in at noon in Bloomington when most of them will probably still be tailgating before halftime and then realize, oh, shoot, we got a game to get to. <laughs> <clears throat> now, against Michigan, the last four times they played against the Wolverines, the Maize and Blue has won, but the margin of victory has been no more than 11 points, and that's playing in both Ann Arbor and in Bloomington. So like I said, Harbaugh struggles against the Cream and Crimson. And Indiana is a team, like I said, that could be the Kentucky of this year and have a resurrection-type season. I like the hiring of Kalen DeBoer, and I am with you. Peyton Ramsey, to me, is the most underrated quarterback in the Big Ten, maybe the one of the most underrated quarterbacks in the country, but there's a lot of buzz about Michael Penix. So if Penix can be that much better than Ramsey was last year and as you know, better than he performed this spring, then they've got a great situation on their hands. And he's a lefty. So that could pose some mechanical problems and some visual problems for that Buckeye defense so early on in the season. And I mm-hmm. kind of go back to in the mid-2000s when the Illinois Fighting Illini shocked the Ohio State Buckeyes on the road. Now, of course, Indiana has them at home in their backyard. But that could be the win that catapults the Hoosiers into a a race for the Big Ten East Championship. And I secretly would be pulling for them to do so, not just as a college football fan, but just to get some parity in that East that's dominated by the, the same four teams. Bip. Right. Now, my team from the Big Ten is actually going to be the Penn State Nittany Lions. So <clears throat> here's why. They host a likely undefeated Michigan team in their whiteout game this year. <clears throat> and Michigan, excuse me, is one and four in the last decade out in Happy Valley. Now, Harbaugh is one and one, but the only win came against the Nittany Lions when they were renovating that team, and it only came by 12 points. PSU will likely be coming off a loss at Iowa, so that's going to be a little bit of a, a burr in their heel that, that's going to give them more motivation to play lights out in that whiteout game in Penn State. That's a tough, tough environment. I can't wait to watch that. It's probably going to be featured in college game day and just to see the raucous crowd. I've been out there three or four times, and Beaver Stadium is a wonderful sight to see when all those fans are happy and, and going at it. Now, <clears throat> They also, the Nittany Lions, play at Ohio State the week before the Buckeyes travel to Michigan in Ann Arbor in what could be a distractor game on either side. Either they put too much emphasis on the Nittany Lions on senior day in Columbus, or they look ahead to the maize and blue and either win close or lose style points or just flat out lose. So for me, Penn State's going to be that team in the Big in the Big Ten that's going to play spoiler either for the Michigan Wolverines' hopes at a, a college football playoff spot or Ohio State. Yep, and I, I like uh, the, all the playmakers that Penn State has on that offense. K.J. Hamler, Justin Shorter, and that group of running backs that they have, Ricky Slade, Journey Brown, and true freshman Noah Kane coming in, they have home run threats all over the place. If they catch, uh, or if Michigan or Ohio State catches them on the wrong afternoon, especially in that uh, ruckus environment um, that you mentioned in Happy Valley, then it could be a long afternoon for um, those programs. And I'm going to go on record right now and say Penn State will beat Michigan in that whiteout game, but I think the Buckeyes get the best of the Nittany Lions in another close one between James Franklin and the Scarlet and Gray. So what about our next Power 5 buster bit? Well, speaking of James Franklin, I'm going to go to uh, Vanderbilt, Chappie. And this is a team that I'm pretty high on uh, going into this year. Now, their schedule sets up to where they start off the season home against Georgia, in which the season opener where we've seen plenty of powerhouse teams that come out flat to start the year. And I think that Vanderbilt is a very dangerous team uh, to come out flat against as Kalijah Lipscomb, Jared Pinckney, Keyshawn Vaughn will all challenge for first team all SEC honors this year. What figures to be one of the more explosive offenses in the SEC. And for those not paying attention to them last year, one of the more underrated offenses in the entire country. They finished last year averaging 37 points per game in their last five games and scored over 30 points uh, seven times last year. Now, they do lose starting quarterback Kyle Shermer, but they get transfer from Ball State Riley Neal. Now, I know you're thinking 
transfer from Ball State, but Riley Neal's got a lot of talent. He's completed uh, 60% of his passes throughout his career and really adds some mobility to that quarterback position as he's had over 1,300 career rushing yards while averaging 4.2 yards per carry and scoring 15 touchdowns with his legs. So I think that that offense adds a, uh, a little bit more of a dynamicness to it with Neal at the helm. And as I mentioned, he's got all sorts of playmakers to um, throw the ball to and and around him much better and hands down better than any offense that he that could even come close to at Ball State. So the Commodores, though, their their biggest issue, similarly to Indiana, is that defense is not going to be anything that gives anyone any scare as they lose a lot of starters from last year, most notably their two corners, Joan Williams and Donovan Sheffield, as well as their leading tackler, Jordan Griffin. But more so than that, potentially, Vandy didn't close out games last year. So they lost their bowl game to Baylor with under two minutes left to go. They led Missouri the entire game until Mizzou scored the eventual game-winning touchdown uh, with nine minutes left to go in the fourth quarter. They led or tied Kentucky the majority of the game until the Wildcats pulled away with eight minutes left to go in the fourth. They were up 21-3 to against Florida in the second quarter mm -hmm. and were down by only as much as three with 12 minutes left to go in the fourth quarter against them. And lastly, they played Notre Dame very tight in the second half and were the team closest to knocking off the Irish in the regular season, but a jump ball up to Kalijah Lipscrum was knocked away on a great play by Jalen Elliott on fourth down that really probably would have set up a potential or the uh, the game-winning touchdown for the uh, Commodores to, to knock them off. So in, in um, going into 2019, they have uh, some, some big dogs in the SEC that they go up against. And I wouldn't be shocked if the Commodores come away and ruin a season for one of those said teams of um, Georgia, Florida, or LSU. Yeah, and, and they do get some pretty good transfers, especially on the defensive side of the ball. Two former Big Ten playmakers in Cameron Watkins, who was a starting cornerback at Illinois. Also, uh, a sixth or a fifth defensive back, Dante Carrier-Williams, who comes over from Wisconsin. So some pretty battle-tested players on that defensive side of the ball. I do like Riley Neal. He made probably more headlines and more buzz as a spring quarterback in his performance more than any other SEC quarterback. And again, I know you really can only believe about 10% of what stock you get from spring ball, right. but you know it's, it's certainly bodes well for the Commodores that they have Neal to come in and transition for the loss of Kyle Shermer. I think that their receiving group is going to be great this year. They add Justice Shelton Mosley, who was a pretty pretty productive wide receiver from Harvard. He's got good speed, uh, one of those elusive type guys. They, they're going to need to replace some players in the offensive line. And yeah, you're right. All of those close games last year, you see it go one of two ways. Either a team really galvanizes from that and they come out and they are much, much tighter the next season. Or they kind of look back and say, we were so close and we just screwed the pooch. And so they kind of fall apart. So I can see Vanderbilt as being like a nine-win team or a four-win team, depending on how they handle the closeness of last year's games. And you can bet that Derek Mason is making that a focal point in this offseason of, we were this close, let's finish now. In fact, I don't know what their team mantra is, but I have to believe that the word finish is thrown around there in, <laughs> in Nashville quite a bit. Right. Um, the next team I'm going to get to, is out in the Pac-12, Oregon State. So I know that some people are scratching their head and saying, wait, did I hear that correctly? Oregon State, the Beavers? You're talking about the Beavers as in the Oregon State team and not about uh, you know something else? Here's, here's what I think with, with OSU. They play Washington at home at Research Stadium with head coach Jonathan Smith, who was on the UW staff two years ago. Now, these teams have traded win streaks over the last 20 years, each one winning about six or seven in a row. The Beavers have a good amount of returning production from last year's team and some hidden gems that they get in the transfer market and from junior college ranks. Plus, they get some, um, you know, they, they have years of experience and they're really getting, I think, better coaching and they've, they've, They've made a lot of big strides this offseason. It may be way out of people's realm of possibility, but they get the Huskies after a hard-fought game that UW plays against the Utes in Seattle and Utah, and the Beavers follow a game against Arizona. So if there's a trap game on Washington's schedule that they may be overlooking, it's going to be this one, and this is the type of slip-up game that Pac-12 contenders 
seem to fall into. Now, I'm not calling that they win the Civil War on the road in Eugene against Oregon, but I think that Oregon State could really give Washington a headache and give them that loss that prevents them from being an undefeated team that gets a shot at the college football playoff. Yeah, and in in addition to that, getting Utah at home too. A couple nice uh, home games for a team like Oregon State who – has some pieces, they're improving, but they're one of those that a, a team is most likely going to overlook them. Jamar Jefferson could just go off in any one of those games. Now, that being said, we know that Washington and Utah have uh, some really good defenses to where they could keep that uh, Beaver offense in check. But similarly to you, uh, Oregon State should be much improved this year. And if teams look past them uh, for any number of reasons, the, the Beavers could uh, give them reason for um, uh, showing that that would be a, a major mistake for them for sure. Right. And and I'm going to give a little hint at our Pac-12 preview coming up in a few weeks. I think Oregon State could be that surprise team from the Pac-12 that, you know, they're not going to contend for a, a division title, but I think sure. that they they easily could be bowl eligible this year, maybe even contend for seven, possibly eight wins. And I think that, that would be a shoe in for coach of the year in the Pac-12 for Jonathan Smith. I really like him. Absolutely. And well, again, he was the quarterback that quarterback the Beavers when Notre Dame got blasted in the Fiesta Bowl in 2001, if you forgot. Oh, I don't I don't think that they even played that game. But uh, moving on, <laughs> um, my my last team here, Chappie, that I wanted to touch upon briefly is uh, the Stanford Cardinal. Now, let me say that I am going to go out there and say that it wouldn't surprise me if Stanford got to six wins this year. Uh, and that's it, mainly due to that schedule. But because their schedule is so daunting, they have plenty of opportunities to trip teams up and to potentially break up the uh, be a buster for uh, playoff hopes for uh, folks in the Pac-12 and beyond. So they play at USC. They're at UCF. They have Oregon and Washington at home. They're at Washington State. And that game against Washington State is uh, one in which Wazoo follows that up from back-to-back road games against Oregon and Cal. So they may be uh, a little battle-tested, and you have to wonder what their health is going to be like going into that one. And then Stanford finishes up the year at home on the farm against Notre Dame. Now, the significance of that one, Notre Dame could have some playoff hopes, and the Irish will be coming off of two very physical games against Navy and Boston College prior to this game, and this will be Notre Dame's sixth straight week without a bye. So you have to wonder how the health... Uh, of the Irish will be when they head to the farm and Stanford could really relish playing the role of spoiler once again to the Irish as they've done multiple times in the 2000s. KJ Costello should once again be one of the more prolific passers in the country. David Shaw is one of the best coaches in the country and that might in and of itself be worth an upset or two this season. They do face an uphill battle though as they lose their top three pass catchers in Arcega Whiteside, Irwin, and Caden Smith and also um Uh, campus legend Bryce Love as well. So um, in addition to that, they lose some key players on defense like Bobby Okariki, Sean Barton, and crew, but they do return enough on both sides of the ball to be very dangerous if taken lightly. Again, I don't see them making much noise in the Pac-12 at all this year, but they're definitely a team that uh, to, to keep an eye out for if you're looking for an upset special multiple times throughout 2019. Yeah, the teams that I see them beating in terms of those with playoff aspirations, I do see them beating Notre Dame at the end of the year, and I know you don't like to hear that, but you brought up great points. That's going to be a testament to how how healthy and how strong and how much the Irish have left in the tank at that point playing right. out on the farm. They've they've typically struggled in years past, especially against David Shaw when you're going out to Palo Alto. I think that they lose to Oregon because they play them too early in the season. I think that they lose I'm sorry, I think they beat UCF you know and and kind of ruin the the Knights chances because of the fact that you know they're playing them early enough the big question for me not just on defense is how soon can they get that run game going now David Shaw has done great things at making a run game go and you know they'll play with eight offensive line bodies on that offense to try and pave the way but is it going to be Spates is it going to be Scarlett or is it going to be Jones their their freshman running back somebody's going to have to take the lead once they get into October. And I think by season's end, you're looking at an eight win Stanford team who probably will knock off one or or two of those title or those playoff contenders. Bip, I like that one. Mm -hmm. Now I'm going to go to 
the the Big 12 and you know everybody is picking Oklahoma and Texas to be neck and neck and and I'm going to be in the same boat with that. But Baylor plays both the Sooners and the Longhorns in back-to-back games both in Waco at McLean Stadium. Now, both the Sooners and the Longhorns play the Bears following Iowa State. So Oklahoma and Texas are playing the Cyclones and then have to follow it up by playing the Baylor Bears. OU gets Iowa State at home. Texas has to play on the road in Ames and then have to come and play the Bears on the road. Now, Baylor, by November, should be primed for this type of upset and really be playing with house money, whereas the Sooners and Longhorns will be walking the balance beam, trying not to look down or to get to the end too quickly for fear of falling. I honestly see the Bears tripping up the Sooners before the Longhorns due to the fact that Jalen Hurts scares me less at that point than Sam Ellinger does, provided that Ellinger's healthy. I really like Baylor's offense this year, and I feel that Matt Rule in a home game at that point in the season can get it done for the green and gold, especially with a home game against an improved and in-the-thick-of-the-race TCU team looming the next week for the Sooners. So OU might be looking more ahead to TCU at that point, who I think is going to be about a nine-win team this year, than they are a Baylor team who at that point uh, will really kind of just be playing to finish in the upper third of the Big 12 and maybe playing for a slightly bigger bowl game. But I like Matt Rule. I like the trajectory of this program, and I really like that offense, especially his weapons at wide receiver. And that defense is going to be underrated, and Clay Johnson is going to be one of the the more fun players to watch. I think he's an all-Big 12 middle linebacker. They're doing good things out there in Waco, Bip. So I like Baylor playing that spoiler role for some of those playoff teams. Right, and and funny uh, or interesting scheduling quirk, uh, you mentioned that Baylor plays both Texas and uh, Oklahoma after each team plays Iowa State. Both Texas and Oklahoma actually play Kansas State uh, the week before they play Iowa State. So interesting schedule quirk there. Um, But yeah, with uh, Charlie Brewer and that group of receivers that they have, it's going to be a shootout uh, regardless who Baylor Mm -hmm. plays. And as we've seen uh, last year and in years past in the Big 12, that's all it takes is a high-powered offense for um, an upset to happen. So the fact that they do play um, after each team plays Iowa State, I think that that plays to their favor. And uh, like you said, uh, Clay Johnston, James Lynch coming back on that defense should be an improved Baylor Bear defense coming into this year as well. Yeah, and I like Oklahoma's defense to be much better and much improved this year, but Baylor has really four starting quality players on that offensive line coming back. Connor Galvin, Giancarlo Valentin, Sam Tecklenburg, and Jake Frumorgan, who's a Clemson transfer. A lot of good things coming out of spring camp for the Baylor Bears on that offensive side. And if they can gel that defense, they really only lose four guys from that defense. And a lot of experience coming back. I was impressed by their bowl game against Vandy last year. Keep an eye out for Baylor to maybe finish higher than, than most people would expect in the Big 12 this year. Right, and their top three running backs that they return this year all average 5.3 yards per carry or more. So uh, an, an, a, a pretty good uh, underrated rushing attack that they have there as well. Yeah, and if it means anything, uh, their leading returning rusher, John Lovett, is supposed to be moving to safety. So what that tells me is there's enough depth and there's enough talent behind him to where they can afford to take Lovett, who averaged 5.3 a carry last year, move him in his speed and his aggression to the defensive side of the ball and really not lose a beat at running back. <clears throat> Another team I want to throw out there, which I kind of already touched on, is the Houston Cougars. Now, the reason I'm calling them a a playoff buster is um, you know, for, for stumbling these playoff-bound potential teams is the Cougars open up at Oklahoma on a Sunday where there'll be a lot of hype on Jalen Hurts. And I don't see Hurts coming out and lighting the world on fire in this first game, even though he's going against a suspect Houston defense. Playing in his first game as a Sooner, I think it'll be closer than many think. And kind of like it was in Houston's game against the much higher ranked Sooners in Baker Mayfield a couple years ago, where Houston almost came away with the upset. Or actually, they did, didn't they, Bip? Didn't they beat Oklahoma? Um, couple years ago against Baker Mayfield uh, in in the opener. Okay, I believe you're right. Yeah, so it could be very similar. I think that OU wins this game, but it's not going to be a cakewalk like some people might be looking at in Norman. Now, with Heisman candidate Derek King and that core of receivers that we talked about in a bulked-up run game, going against the new Alex Grinch defense of the Sooners trying to prove something, look for the Cougars to create some fits for the favored OU team. Did you have something to add on that, Bip? Well, no, I was just going to say, uh, yeah, that uh, I think more than anything, this being Jalen Hurts' first game, that's a tough um, 
head to head going against the Eric King uh, in that yeah. back and forth. That should be one of the more exciting matchups in that first week of the season. Yeah. And I think that that's really going to catapult King into the Heisman talk because I think that he's going to outplay Hertz right. and Hertz is going in inexplicably, inexplicably, sorry, inexplicably <laughs> to me, that's third time's the charm, uh, you know, as a Heisman favorite. And I just don't see that. I, I I'm not sold on him as being one of the, best quarterback now he's he's playing in a great system and you really can't have a better offensive coach than uh lincoln riley to tutor you but i see king being the one that comes out with the stats that are really going to turn more heads in that game Mm -hmm. now the cougars then play at ucf in november after the knights play a thorny temple team out of the aac so if ucf is undefeated at that point and the cougars likely have a loss or two it sets up houston with a good advantage especially after a tough blue collar temple team likely beats up UCF a little bit. So those are really the two playoff teams that I see Houston tripping up or having the potential to trip up and making their road to the CFP a little bit tougher. And and even if you want to throw in Washington state there, uh, given the fact that Mike Leach loves to overachieve uh, that game is in NRG stadium in Houston. So a, what amounts to essentially a home game, where uh, Washington State comes into town, that's going to be another high-flying event that the Cougars could come away with. Let me, let me specify, the Houston Cougars could come away with in that one. Right, right. And again, all these big spotlight games, that's only going to add to King's exposure and, mm-hmm. and getting people to you know, have their eyeballs get bigger for, for his Heisman campaign. Right. Well, that was good, Bip. That's our beat on the bullbound buster. So question is, will it hold true? Will these prognostications come to fruition? Are Bip and I early geniuses? No matter what your opinion, share them with us at the hashtag college football world on Twitter. I am at champion underscore lit, and he is at BFC Bip. Or again, you can email us at bowlfulofchips at gmail.com. We're glad you listened and gave us your ears for the last hour or so. And remember, when it comes to complete college football coverage, only BFC brings football closer. On our next podcast, we have the honor of being joined by Pick 6 Previews. So they're the most accurate college football publication out there. Yes, even more than Athlon, even more than the beloved Phil Steele, at least for the past seven years anyway. Seven years. That's what Pick 6 Previews has done, and they are gracious enough to be our guests later this week on podcast number 41 for Bip and I. That's damn good, Bip. So we like to think that the new kids on the block, though, yours truly and Bip himself as well, are going to make some noise and challenge pick six preview. So it'll be interesting to see how the season shakes out. We'll have to wait and see. Coming in July, we'll give you our full-fledged 2019 predictions for every Power 5 conference, every team that fights within, as well as our group of five outlooks and rankings and just great college football tidbits here and there. So if you haven't yet subscribed, what the hell are you doing? Hit that subscribe button. Make things easy on yourself in the future. And if you have a moment, please rate us as well. Be honest, but again, five stars is the best way to go if you're up in the air. And we appreciate your feedback more than anything else. Please also share the good word with friends and family that eat, sleep, breathe, and even bleed college football. And remind them about a bowl full of chips, the best growing college football podcast out there. We want to remind you here that the season is just 67 days away, and in that time, we promise to continue giving you all the info that you look for and more. Follow us on Twitter at Bowlful of Chips and find the link to our website that has all the good stuff in print. So, Bip, uh, anything else before we leave our listeners and, and have a good night? No, sir. All right. It's been good. It's been fun, as it always is. And remember, join us on our next podcast later in the week when we are joined by the fellows at Pick 6 Previews. So, till then... Love it, leave it, college football, it's great. Good night, everybody.